Handbrake Off is brought to you by Bet365, the world's favourite online betting company. By downloading the Bet365 app, you can access both pre-match and in-play markets, along with instant match updates for all. The Bet365 Bet Builder also allows you to make personalised bets via the app, so you can bet on multiple scenarios and create your own bet with unique odds right there in your hands. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and the Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a handbrake off. Hello, I'm Ian Stone and this is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Now, we are following government guidelines and practising safe podcasting, so I'm joined in a virtual, if not a literal sense, by the writers for The Athletic, Amy Lawrence and James McNicholas and the former Arsenal right-back and legend, Mr Lee Dixon. Now, I'm going to ask everyone, I know it's a big question, but how are you? Is everyone okay? Amy? Well, there's a kind of, there's a twofold element to this question. How are you physically yes. and how are you in your slowly crushed brain <laughs> trying <laughs> yes, to adjust Amy, to this new reality? Amy is homeschooling at the moment, I should tell the listener. So uh, she's, um, well, struggling. She's going with... slowly crazy. <laughs> OK, OK. Uh, James, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm okay. I I mean, I don't have kids, so that is a help, I think, in this time. It makes uh, my life slightly less difficult and stressful. To be honest, my life probably changed less than other people's. I'm sort of at home writing, doing podcasts. It's basically the same as it ever was. Right. Lee, and you're enjoying this, aren't you? Well, I couldn't say enjoying it. I mean, that <laughs> sounds like I'm some sort of weirdo. Um <laughs> But I, I, there is, there's definitely, um, I'm feeling a definitely resetting um, thing going on with everything and, and life and the, the world and nature and all of that lot. And, I, and uh, although it's scary and there's no doubt about that, and there's a bit of, quite a bit of fear hiding in my chest somewhere, but there is also, um, I've kind of accepted the, the being away from everyone. It's just me and my wife here. The kids are kind of... Um, isolated in their house and got the dog and and there's a routine to our day that's not cluttered with all sorts of other stuff so there's a bit of a calming influence going on for me right now sort of covering over the fear um so i'm not i wouldn't say i was enjoying it but i i feel quite calm at the moment lee you sound like a zen master I feel quite <laughs> calm. I feel quite calm listening to you, Lee. Uh, to be honest with you. Can, you, can you. we just do kind of serenity podcasts with Lee Dixon? Uh. Might make might make life feel a lot easier over this. I like the idea period. of Lee sitting on top of a mountain. We'll get his little books made that you can buy in bookshops called "The Thoughts of Lee Dixon." Um, I um, well, for myself, I'm obviously a, my main job is stand up comedy, and I'm not able to do that. So I'm doing little gigs for the kids. So they're loving it, as you can imagine. Uh, now, obviously. <laughs> uh, there's no football anywhere on earth for the next few months. So how uh, to fill the aching void? Well, for us, for the moment, we're going to talk about some of the greatest players ever to grace the Arsenal shirt. Now, 
No disrespect, Lee, but we all hope and pray the coronavirus doesn't last long enough to include you on this list. But, (laughs) (laughs) but that was no disrespect meant. I'm just saying it's a long list. But you did play with our subject this week and there would have been times when you had to try and stop him in training. Uh, We are talking, of course, about the great Thierry Henry. Uh, Now, before Mm. we get into details of Thierry's career, we were going to talk about his best moments in an Arsenal shirt. It doesn't have to be goals. It could be passes. It could be looks to the crowd. Uh, Lee, as I said, you had to come up against in training quite a bit. Uh, what mm. were your, What was your best moment, uh, Thierry Henry moment? Um, God, there's so many of them. And I, and I think probably quite a lot of those were in training, those moments, the little sort of um, moments of magic when he's trying something that it, sometimes it didn't come off and you'd kind of get a chance to laugh at him because that didn't happen very often in a game. Most of the things he did, you know, thankfully uh, on a Saturday came off and he was just a brilliant player to play against um, in training though. I just loved going up against him and trying to pick your wits against somebody who, um, although he was always thinking about the game, um, had the one thing that scared all defenders, and that was blistering pace. So if he run out of ideas, he'd just go, do you know, I'm not just going to try and beat you. I'm just going to knock the ball past you and, r- and run after it, and you've got no chance anyway. So it, that was always his. That was always his last resort. He'd he'd and in training. I think in a game, he he would obviously use that pace whenever he could. But I think in training, he kind of slowed down a little bit and gave us a chance. And said, right, I'm going to try and get past you with my brain and my football know-how, as opposed to just kicking it past old Dicko and, and old Nigel Winterburn and running after it and getting the ball. So we played a lot of 8v8s in training, so the pitch was a lot smaller. So that suited you know, the defenders to be able to get tight and not leave a lot of space behind. So that was a good thing for us. And it kind of tested him as well. And so when he did get out on the the big green acres of, of Highbury and other grounds, he was able then to use that brain power that he'd, he'd kind of practised all week, knowing as well that he had the blistering pace to, to you know to rip Gary Neville any time he wanted to. So it was so in training was was kind of the best. I enjoyed the best of Thierry in training because he was he was great to go against and and tested you every day. Quite. And I guess Saturday afternoons against other opponents wouldn't be as difficult having played against Thierry uh, in the week. No, I mean, I, th- I think, you know, when you, you Saturday was like a relief, you kind of go, well, I haven't got to play against Dennis and Thierry. So we, we might have stand off a chance of stopping those those Muppets that we're coming against now. <laughs> Amy, what about you? Best, best Thierry moment? As usual, I've got a long list. Uh, I feel like I should let James in before I dominate. Um, <laughs> But uh, I think it's the ones, because obviously he scored so many unbelievable goals. It's not necessarily the technique of the goal, but the moment that are the ones that that really shine for me. And um, that goal against Liverpool, which I had to pick for the Athletic, the top three Arsenal goals for a a series they're doing at the moment. And uh, I chose that one because I felt like it transformed the whole shape of that season and it needed to be put in its context where, you know, everything was going wrong very, very badly in that season. Obviously, it turned out to be the great unbeaten season, but it felt like so fragile and everything was on this um, gossamer thin thread. Uh, Knocked out the Champions League, knocked out the FA Cup, um, losing at home to Liverpool at half-time 
And then in the second half, it all turned around through through Thierry being the special Thierry that he was. And uh, that famous goal that he scored where probably not one for Jamie Carragher's highlights reel, but um, it was... It was something in the in the stadium where you felt like Highbury was sort of really shaking to its foundations. Like the the old place was almost roaring in approval with everybody in it. I remember Gerard Houllier was the Liverpool manager at the end. We were talking to him and he just looked flabbergasted, really. And obviously, as a Frenchman, he knew how good Thierry was, but he just gave this impression that there's nothing you can do about somebody like that. And um, that was something when I think of Thierry in a global way. You think it was an amazing thing to know that you were watching one of the best players in the world, undisputed, guaranteed, which you were at that time. I mean, at the peak of his powers, he was pretty much as good as anything. And I sometimes wonder why or how he didn't quite get those kind of Ballon d'Or style um, individual plaudits outside of, obviously, he was player of the year three times in a row or something in the Premier League. Um, But on a kind of global way, he was an extraordinarily sort of influential player. And to have that player at Arsenal that you're watching week in, week out was really nice. Um, There's just one other thing I'll mention. Uh, The Bernabeu gave me a similar feeling. I mean, it was just incredible to be sitting in that stadium and watch that goal. And it was one of those examples where I misbehaved in the press box. Um, (laughs) I weren't weren't many, but it it was just an impossible moment to not celebrate. And we got lots of dirty looks. Me and a, uh, a friend called Roy Collins, who's an also he was an even more sort of noisy Arsenal supporter, I would say, in the in the press box. Um, and I think some Danish journalists turned around and suggested that we got ejected after the the goal in the Bernabeu. But the the one thing I liked that wasn't a goal was in 2004 winning the league at White Hart Lane, where Arsenal had been told not to celebrate because you know, as a sort of on police advice, they were a bit uh, nervous that there would be, um, it would be very volatile and provocative if Arsenal were to win the league at White Hart Lane and celebrate. So they had this chat in the tunnel beforehand and said, you know, please, Arsenal players, um, show some restraint. You'll be able to celebrate afterwards. And everybody said, yeah, of course, we understand. And then in the heat of the situation, I think when Tottenham equalised late on, uh, Maurizio Tarico went and lauded it quite significantly uh, in front of Thierry Henry. And he just went, right. You're going to celebrate a draw. Sorry, mate. I'm going to celebrate winning the league. And he was the one who actually most openly defied the police suggestion when the final whistle went and kind of whipped his shirt off and twirled it around his head, went uh, careering towards the uh, away end and sort of beckoned his teammates over. And that's where the celebration started. So good on him. Good on him indeed. James, what about you? Wow. Where to begin? I mean, Amy mentioned Jamie Carragher there when... Thierry went past him for Liverpool and Jamie Carragher actually gave one of my favourite quotes about Thierry Henry which is said he said when he goes past you it's like trying to chase down a motorbike Uh, and it certainly looked like that every time he played against Jamie Carragher but I was thinking of moments that weren't goals and what struck me was that there were so many and I couldn't help but think about that 2002-2003 season when Thierry Henry, who is the greatest goal scorer in Arsenal's history arguably one of the greatest goal scorers in Premier League history set a record for Premier League assists of 20 assists that has still never been beaten. And I find that incredible because it wasn't his primary job. You know, we've had players get close to that, people like Meza Ozil, Cesc Fabregas, but 
they weren't goal scorers as well. I mean, this guy, he scored 24 goals that season and got 20 assists. You know, it's 44 goal contribution from one player. And I always remember that the last couple of games Arsenal played that season, they played Southampton at home. And I don't know if you remember, but Robert Pires and Jermaine Pennant both scored hat-tricks in a 6-0 win. And Henri got a bunch of assists that day and he, he sort of was so selfless. And on the final day, he was kind of neck and neck with Ruud van Nistelrooy. And there were two occasions where he went clear on goal and instead of taking the shot on, he sort of squared it for Freddie Jumberg. And Jumberg ended up with his first Arsenal hat-trick. And Henri, you know, he could have gone for the golden boot, but he looked for his teammate. And there's a brilliant quote from him which he said in an interview with the Blizzard, where he said, to me, the most beautiful thing is making the pass when you're in a position to score yourself. You know you're good enough to score, but you give the ball, you share, and you see that joy in the eyes of the other guy. You know, he knows, everyone knows. And I just loved that a player was so brilliant and became such an effective goal scorer, retained that selflessness and that sense of team identity and team play. Uh, and suppose that would be my abiding memory of Thierry. Those words that you just said about Thierry, Ian Wright has never even thought about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. Thanks to our good pals at beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight, yes, eight delicious, painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash athletic and pay the postage of £4.95. And, as if that wasn't enough, as a listener of the Athletic Podcast, you'll get two extra free beers. So that's ten free beers for those slow at maths. Beer 52 are beer pioneers. They travel the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the greatest craft breweries planet Earth has to offer. No surprise then, they are the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Each month, Beer 52 deliver a case with a different theme. Themes have included Germany, Korea, Belgium, South Africa, California, New Zealand and many more. But they haven't forgotten their roots. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave at any time. The power is in your hands. Your case will also include the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a beery snack is thrown in just to top it all off. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash athletic to get your free case. And don't forget, right now, the athletic listeners get two extra free beers. It's very hard, isn't it, to, to come up with best moments. I just watched a selection of goals that he scored. Uh, I think there was one against Palace where he got, he took the corner, he was given the ball back and he just did a beautiful little drop of the shoulder and then he walloped it into the top corner. Mm. And what got me about a lot of the goals was how hard he hit the ball. My favourite one was when uh, he was playing against West Ham away at Upton Park and he, uh, he received the ball, took it on the turn and then walloped it into the top corner. I, I'd rarely seen a ball hit that hard. Um, I mean, there are hundreds, <laughs> to be honest with you, but that was I, just I, uh, one. Just just, um, just going back, I just once just popped into my head then, and I, I tried to remember, I popped into my head this morning, and then I forgot about it, and I've just remembered it now. One of the best moments with Thierry was, obviously I was involved in in a goal and I scored I happened to score at um, Aston Villa and Amy will tell me the year because she's brilliant scored uh, Canu sort of slipped me in and I kind of went into the box and 
took a touch and slid it under the goalkeeper. And it was in March, I think it was the day before my birthday, and we were playing at Villa Park and I scored. And I got, because I didn't really score very often, as you know, but when I did, I got up and I didn't really know how to celebrate. And I kind of, I didn't know where, our fans were down that end and I sort of stood up and I was all very nervous and full of energy and I didn't know what to do with it. And if you see the clip on YouTube, Thierry is standing, running next to me and he just grabs hold of me round the neck and he goes, come over here, I'll show you what to do. And he kind of, <laughs> he took me over to the fans and then we sort of celebrated together. And I just remember thinking, oh, this is what you do every week. It's great. And um, I really miss being involved in all that because most of the time I was at the other end just going high-fiving with Dave Seaman, really boring stuff. But I got I actually got to celebrate at the pointed end of the pitch with Thierry. It was brilliant. Lee, um, there was something that I thought was really interesting about going back to when Thierry first arrived, and I'm sure you'll fill us in on this, but he talked about how he was influenced by you lot and mm. how he became, in a way, the player that he became because he walked into this dressing room with yeah. some very experienced, very um, tough, uh, different mentality types of people that he'd yeah. not really come across in France. And he said, in a way, football was easy for him and until then. And he could have just carried on being that same kind of guy who was a bit like, I'll do what I can do and I'm not going to be too stressed about what I can't do. And he didn't have that same necessarily real desire to fight for the right to play, no. which he kind of absorbed from you lot. And I remember him saying how he came in with his socks over his knees and they all sort yeah. of thought, well, you know, what do you look like? Are you serious? And knocked a bit of that out of him. But he was well, grateful for it. Yeah, it we, I talked about him. I talked about that with him recently and I'm trying to remember where I was. We did some work for um, Amazon together when when they had the two games around Christmas time. It was Boxing Day. And I said to him, um, "What's because I presumed he knew Martial because I think he's from the same town or the same area in France." Because I asked him about Martial, I said at United, and I said, what, "What's he like?" And he he looked at me with that kind of look that Thierry does, as if to say, "I've not spoke to you about this." And I and I said, "I said what?" And he goes, "He was exactly like I was when I came to Arsenal." He said, "He needs to go through the process." like I did with you lot. And I don't know whether that United dressing room is like that. He said, uh, and that was the making of him. You know, he talked about, we've talked about it before, but to, to liken himself to, um, or another player to him, it really painted a picture of what Martial's like and what his characters, because he's super talented, like Thierry was. But I don't think, I think his development would have been similar. I'm not saying he would have been as good as Thierry, but would have been similar if he'd have had that, if it had been in the old United dressing room, like, you know, with, with the, the, the characters that we had in our dressing room. And he certainly talks about that as a, as a real learning lesson in his curve to get to how brilliant he was. No, we didn't kick the ball and think what he was thinking in his head, but we kind of channeled it into the right areas and at the right time. And, and we wouldn't put up with some of this stuff when he first came of his, you know, not particularly training very hard, be a bit sulky you know that wasn't allowed you can't do that you're not allowed to come into our, our our workplace and be like that and it wasn't a case of um allowing him a certain amount of uh leeway here and there it was this is how it's done this is the arsenal this is how we dress this is how we train this is what we behave like and if you're in you're in and you'll be one of our mates if you're not 
off you go. And I think that was a big thing for him. Um, Lee, that goal, by the way, was in the 99-2000 season. Kanu assist, just to let you know. Um, 99? What date was it? 16th well, it was actually 2000. It was the 5th of March, 2000. Was it the 5th? I thought it was the day before my birthday. Maybe I'm like the Queen. I've got two birthdays. I can't remember. <laughs> the official Lee Dixon birthday. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, the thing was, you're talking about his goal-scoring celebrations, but we all remember when he first turned up, he missed, as I remember anyway, a lot of chances. Uh, Lee, I'll, I'll come to you first, but I'm interested in everyone's opinion. Were there any doubts, Lee? I mean, you watched him in training, but he missed a lot of chances early on. Were there any doubts in your mind that he was going to make it? Massive. He couldn't hit a barn door in training. <laughs> he yeah. literally, he was. I was a better finisher than him in training that's how bad he was and he won't mind me telling you that because he i think it was all too much for him um the 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 arena he was in the the pressure from the players around him so and everybody was looking at him and we've talked about it before on here about the first training session everyone looks at you and goes yeah he can play no he can't and with thierry oh yeah great touch but he's a goal scorer we thought you know that's you know he's come here to score goals for us even though he'd been playing in a slightly different position um, before then. Arsenal has kind of earmarked him to be our number nine and score loads of goals. And we saw him in training. He was literally, wow. You could see he had, you know, technical ability, but there's a difference. You know, we, we were then looking at him and going, well, if he can't score in training and the pressure's on him when we're all looking at him, what's he going to do on a Saturday? So there, there was definitely, definitely question marks about his, his ability to finish in, in a pressure situation and wow did he wow. certainly turn the tables on us a lot he, he did in the end I mean James I, I know you're talking about pressure Lee but uh, he came from Juventus he was a World Cup winner by that point did you did you also have doubts about whether he could produce I think you had to have doubts in those early days I mean Arsenal had lost Nicholas and Elka who'd been a massive player for them in that period. And although Henri was involved in the World Cup, you know, he was, he was not a pivotal figure for France. It was, was France's the... top scorer. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> he was, but weren't most of those goals scored in a sort of dead rubber game in the group stage? Uh, no, no. It was all the Stefan so. Givarche business, wasn't it, oh, that year for France? me. Well... He did. Well, he anyway. played his part. <laughs> Listen, he played his part. He won a World Cup and a European Championship. I think that's often forgotten about Thierry. You tried telling to... him he didn't play much in the World Cup. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> and he got to another World Cup final as well. But, yeah, of course I did. As a fan, I was sort of worried in those early days until he went was it down to the Dell at Southampton and opened his... I was up with a couple of great goals. And, I mean, it, it was quite incredible how quick the transformation was, you know, how rapidly he went from a guy who, as Lee puts it, couldn't put a bar, couldn't hit a barn door, looked as likely to, you know, break the clock as break his duck. And then suddenly he was on his way and uh, the confidence just flowed into him. And watching a player go through that was quite extraordinary, really, to see someone sort of realising their potential and, you know, just the confidence that sort of he it's incredible he exploded he exploded yeah. and it happened in the course of that season Amy did you did you feel the same way or, or had you having watched the World Cup thought no this guy is special and we're going to see that special talent at some point I hate to be that person everyone hates but I, I was really up on, on the signing and like most people Anelka was um, a, a massive loss and I remember doing an interview with Thierry uh, when he was very new in English football and Arsenal was still um, 
at Sopwell House. So we were just sitting on those sofas and uh, he was he seemed to be quite modest in that period where he was trying very hard to avoid these comparisons with Anelka. And it was quite weird for him because he was actually older than Anelka and he'd been the one who'd played in the World Cup and won it and Anelka didn't get into that squad. So all of a sudden he arrives in England and people are saying, oh, how good's this bloke? Is he going to be the new Anelka? And rather than being a little bit uh, irritated by a comparison against someone that may, maybe he was entitled to think that he was a bit ahead of on the curve, um, he was really really kind about it. He obviously grew up, but what a, uh, an amazing generation of strikers with Anelka and David Trezeguet, who were all of a similar age uh, for France. And um, in fact, I remember chatting to him in, at the World Cup in 98 in a mix zone somewhere and saying, what about Arsenal? And he was like, oh, he was really enthusiastic about Arsenal. I think he, because of the, the Wenger connection, obviously he'd been given his debut by Arsene. Was it you, uh, Amy? But, was it no, you? No, I wouldn't possibly say such a thing. Uh, but because, and because of Patrick and, and people that he knew who were involved in, in that team, I think it really appealed to him because he was at Juventus at the time, uh, not necessarily kicking on as much as he wanted. But just looking back at that, um, at that period, I think it's really significant to remember that he, was, he saw himself as a winger when he came to Arsenal. And although Arsene turned around really quickly and said, right, I'm going to put you back in your position, he felt like he had to relearn stuff. And I'll just um, read some quotes that he, he said about this uh, a little while ago. And he said, you don't doubt your ability. I was saying to myself, hang on a minute. I'm in the national team. I won the World Cup as a winger. Am I wasting my time here trying to relearn being a striker? It was frustrating. It felt like I wasn't helping anybody there. I did forget that I had it. I forgot about goals. When you play as a winger, you have to assist the game, help the left back. It's not your job to score. You lose that killer instinct and that, that I'd had when I was young. And I had to learn, if you can say, how to kill. So it's interesting that it's, I think there was a lot going on in his head as much as anything else. He had to convince himself that he could be efficient and of use and really effective playing as a striker again. And I think he worked really hard at that. He... he at the training ground, spent a lot of time trying to readapt himself into being sort of a number nine. Like, what kind of runs do I make? He's a really, really intelligent person. And again, Lee will probably have a lot more info on this than me. But whenever he spoke about football, I always felt that he was thinking about it incredibly deeply, analysing it a lot. And it also had this photographic memory of like almost any game that in history that you could remember having happened. He would be telling you the scorers and what happened and particular incidents regarding certain players. He's got a phenomenally big interest in memory on football as a whole. It's interesting you say that because I, I think I, I think that's a striker thing because Wright is the same. He can remember, I think they because they're always trying to create something and their brains are slightly differently wired than us, us you know, hammer throwers at the back who are there to destroy things and obviously the modern game slightly different um, but I think there's a there's definitely a, a mindset of a defender and a mindset of a striker and I think strikers I mean I can't remember you know hardly any of the games I played in and I, I need to ring you up and text you and say what happened then because you know everything Amy but um, as far as uh, right is the same he can remember he'll go oh remember that game in uh, against Forest when you did this and I did that and then I scored here and went near post and, and Thierry's the same and it's the, they've got kind of a real um, a real deep thinking 
process and i think that comes out of trying to work out where that's you know where the space is how do i defeat this problem and where am i going to create something and it's just a different way of thinking um and i think that 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 has to have something to do with it all the strikers out there all the really dennis is the same all the top top strikers seem to have that ability to be able to remember stuff in games so lee um where was the turning point then do you think i mean you're obviously watching him in training and he's missing chances and we're seeing it on the pitch as well on a saturday afternoon um was there a turning point? Was there a moment when he scored? I mean, he scored against, was it Southampton to get his um, debut goal? Was there a point when you thought, hello, here we are? Well, like every striker, you know, that moment, they'll look back and say it was then. And, and, it, and it genuinely is a, a, a game, a weekend where, you know, that Southampton game stands out. And, and James has said it was pretty quick from then onwards. Um, but I think we kind of, it's the same with Dennis. You know, Dennis struggled when he first came in to hit the back of the net. But we kind of, with Dennis, it was kind of like, you know, he's going to score at some point and, and then it's going to be, the floodgates are going to open. Um, even, you know, for every single game he played, he looked like he was he was ready to to explode. With with Thierry, you could kind of see it in training first. It was it was building in training. He's, he started hitting. It wasn't just after the Southampton game, he started it in the back of the net. In training, he was kind of a build-up from leading up to that game. Um, so there was, the, and you know, you know, anyone who knows Thierry will know how s- supremely confident he is in his in his own ability, his own um, thought process about the game. That's why he's going on to be a coach and a manager. He's so switched on as to what he thinks about the game is the right way of doing things, and that's a real confidence in what he believes in the game. And that's not to say. Um, that he doesn't take other uh, opinions on on board. He, he's going to have to do that as a manager and a coach. Um, but I, I genuinely think he he thinks about the game. He might think about the game a little bit too much. You know, sometimes I think you could, you you're right on the edge as a coach to overthink things. And I think if someone's going to overthink things, it could be Thierry in the early early days of him being a coach and a manager. And that's something he'll probably have to learn to let a few things go and. You know, I think he probably struggled a little bit at Monaco because of that. That he was like, "No, this is what we're going to do," and I'm. This is my first real job, and did it. And and obviously, he had a, a load of other problems off the pitch. But in the play, you're all about the players. But I think that will be a learning curve for him to just to let a few things go because he's so supremely knowledgeable about the game. It can all almost lead to, well, I know everything, and you don't. Um, and and but he's intelligent enough to be able to work that out. So let's talk about his um, his attributes then. Lee, you mentioned his pace. Um, I mean, it was ridiculous. I, I watched. I've said I watched a selection of the goals, and there was one against Sunderland in two thousand, and he came up against Steve Bold, who was playing for yeah. them, and you and you saw the pass, and you thought, oh, the defender's favourite to get that, and Henri got it, and the commentator said maybe the Frenchman with just a little sharper turn of pace there, <laughs> and, and it did it did make me laugh. But the pace was one of the main attributes, uh, I would suggest. James, I mean, is there anything, I mean, was there anything he was bad at, by the way, James, do you think? 
In the early days, he didn't score a lot of headers. I seem to remember it took him quite a long time to score his first headed goal for Arsenal. Um, I mean, as you know, in the end, there were a couple of great ones. One against Manchester United at the Emirates Stadium. Last minute. Really stands out in the last minute. Yeah. I think pace was the most eye-catching thing. But a lot of players, you get players who are quick and they're quick without the ball. You know, Anelka was brilliant running onto stuff or running in behind. I think what was so extraordinary about Omri was that he was almost as quick with the ball. You know, if you watch something like his goal against Spurs, the speed at which he moved from one end of the field to the other, keeping the ball at his feet, that's pretty unusual. You don't see that really. And he was he was a brilliant dribbler to go with the speed, allied with that. I also think that once he settled, his degree of composure was extraordinary. Like when he went through on goal... You know, he had that archetypal Henri finish, the open body, the side foot into the far corner. To be able to sort of take your touch, take your time, to be that cool under pressure, to never thrash it, I think is it speaks to the mindset of a player and just having that technique so nailed down that you can rely on it in those situations. Um, yeah, but there was imagination in his play too. You know, I remember him doing things that I'd never seen. I mean... He scored a back heel against Charlton once where he stood with his back to goal about eight yards out and then just knocked it into the net off the back of his foot. He did this a trick that a few times, which was like a pass. He looked like he was going to shoot and then he would pull his leg back to shoot and pass the ball with his standing foot without even looking. It was extraordinary. It was a bit of showboating, but, you know, to be able to pull that off in game was pretty amazing I mean you know I could eulogise all day but I should probably leave something for Amy to say <laughs> Amy what anything in particular well just on on that kind of pace element I I definitely remember feeling quite a lot of times like that sense of like almost laughing that he passed to himself you know yeah. he'd, he'd actually take a pass and and play the ball and then it was as if he was actually passing to himself I thought it was incredible um but I don't know, it's hard to, to know what to add. I, I, it was just such a pleasure to watch the way that he played and also just interacted with with players around him. And that left-hand channel when you had Thierry, Robert Perez and Ashley Cole as a sort of triangle, uh, I can't believe that any right-sided defenders ever would have wanted to go on the pitch when they were up no. against that. There was a kind of uh, telepathy almost, an instinctive understanding um, in French, they call it, I think, automatisme, where you do things automatically like, without really, you know, it's going to come off. Um, and they had such a great understanding. It was uh, it was great that he was such a team player, although he was such a, a unique individual, kind of in an athletic point of view. I, I, I mean, if I had to take one thing uh, about what he did, that the touch... I mean, I think Dennis Bergkamp was, was the best I'd ever seen, but Thierry was a very close second. I have a very strong memory in my mind of of uh, a ball, I think, over the top against Manchester City that he brought down with his with his right foot and then half volleyed in with his left uh, in front of the away end. And, um, I mean, balletic would be a way I would describe him, uh, really. I, ju- I just think he had, he had a... Um, a grace about him that I've rarely seen uh, in many footballers. Like you say, I don't remember him uh, with many, many headers, uh, but pretty much everything else. I think he could uh, he could do better than everyone else. Uh, Lee, are there many players you played with that are better than him? Well, this is this is a standout moment in our podcast. I don't know how many we've done. Uh, um, we've done quite a few now, haven't we? But uh, we this have. is a standout moment that we should... Um, 
acknowledge because I'm actually going to agree with you, Stony. Um, <laughs> we should so, have a trumpet solo here, yeah. but thank you. So, yeah, I think, you know, the obvious is his pace, etc. But his touch was just, yeah. it was, it's almost dreamlike. You could, I always used to test him out in games. I mean, you never get that. In training, you try and, you know, upset a player by smashing a ball at him and saying, oh, you, you can't save. You can't uh, you can't get a touch on that, or you can you know and and try and upset things. But I used to do it in games. I used to hit balls at him on purpose, really hard, just to see <laughs> whether I could kind of you know it was he was that good of a touch. Him and Dennis, you could do any you could try passes out. You wouldn't pass to another player because you know he would just his first touch was magnetic, and even if he was stretching for it, he'd make you know one of your pretty terrible balls into a good one because you kind of. He had that ability to just, you know, um, put his foot out and be able to cushion and, and and put a bit of velvet on the end of his foot in order to just cushion it into the right position in order for them to extend his stride and go into a run or immediately pass it to somebody else because he'd already thought about what he was going to do. So if you've got a touch like that, touch gives you time and and. and Time and space on a football pitch are the same thing. So, if you've got that ability to create your own time and space by your brilliant touch, then you can get away with not being that quick. But he also was blisteringly quick. So he, he was unf he was an unfair player. He, he you know he was it was unfair to the opposition. Felt a little bit sorry for him, when, especially um, <laughs> Gary Neville. I mean, you know, he just him him and he used to hate playing against. Mark Overmars, our, our three left-sided players, Gary Neville's had to play against, uh, Mark Overmars, <laughs> Robert Perez, and then Thierry coming out. So, I mean, to be fair to Gary, he's done well to have a career after facing them lot. Hello, uh, producer Tyo here. This athletic podcast is brought to you in association with Stitch Fix. It's an online personal styling service that takes the hard work out of dressing well. To get started, go to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic. You get to fill in a style quiz and tell us about your personal style, your budget, your size, your shape, and your clothing needs and wants. A personal stylist will then send you five items of clothing, each hand-picked especially for you from their selection of 100 brands, including established names and up-and-coming designers. Try on everything at home and style with other items in your wardrobe. You can then pay for what you like and send back the rest. For your stylist's time, you pay a charge of just £10, which is deducted from the cost of anything you buy. So remember, you try before you buy, delivery and returns are free both ways, and you don't need a subscription to sign up. Get started with Stitch Fix today and support our podcast, please, by going to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic right now that's s-t-i-t-c-h-f-i-x dot co dot uk forward slash athletic thanks any negative aspects to to the when you played with him i mean obviously you know we've said that he could be a bit impatient perhaps with other players did you see that side of him did you have to sort of give him no, a look I once think... in a while I think Thierry is he's an intelligent boy, and I think he knew who to give looks to and who not to. Um, so he's definitely—I mean, I've definitely hit some terrible balls up to him and missed opportunities to put him in on goal. 
Um, and but he knows better than to to give me that look. Uh, but I, as the, as the kind of older generation started to leave the club, and he became more of a, a figurehead in the dressing room. Um, I think the look started. I certainly saw the look quite a few times after I was a lot of left. So he kind of grew into that. Okay, well I'm going to tell you now that that's not good enough. Um, but with us lot, he was a little bit, a little bit under the radar as far as that looks concerned. Yeah. Do you do you think there was a, a point, uh, Amy James? I'm interested in what you think about this. Do you think there was a point in the last few seasons when he was around when the rest of the team were looking to him too much, and it was almost a relief when he went because then they played more as a team rather than having Thierry as the, the focal point. I can see what you're saying, but I, I can't really buy that it was a good thing for Arsenal to lose one of the best players ever. Um, in fact, I think one of the important, it, it, it's not the easiest period to look back on, but the, an important one nonetheless, is when the Champions League final and its immediate aftermath and... I don't know if you can recall, but leading up to the Champions League final in 2006, there was so much noise about Barcelona coming in for Thierry. And then the final, of course, was against them. And when it came around, it's probably not one that's an easy one for him to look back on, but he, he could have got that second goal and I think he knew it. They had a couple of presentable chances to make it 2-0. Uh, and I think it was um, Van Bronckhorst who was with Barcelona by then, uh, ex-Arsenal player, who gave a really quite horrible to look back on insight, saying that the kind of, the temperament within that Barcelona side was had they gone two 0 down they would not have come back. Oh. It's uh, sorry, it's a difficult list, bit of listening, but interesting. Um, but then of course after that, where there was it was a emo deeply emotional period for him um, as a as a Parisian to be playing in the final in Paris with the club that he fell in love with against the club that was after him. There was a lot going on for him in that few weeks. And he turned around pretty, I don't know if it was the next day or certainly within the next week, Thierry came and did a press conference and said, I'm staying. Uh, and it was the end of Highbury, which is also deeply emotional for a lot of people involved. And Thierry used to call Highbury his garden. And I think he was one of those who found it difficult to kind of go back and have a look or drive past because it was like he wanted to keep those memories perfect. Um, but he, I think he was ready to go and probably if Arsenal had won the Champions League, he might have gone that summer, actually. But because yeah. I didn't feel he felt that he could leave at that point going into the Emirates and he stayed that extra year and it wasn't perhaps individually his best year and it wasn't maybe the best one for the team for the reasons that you mentioned, Ian, that they were beginning to be so reliant on him. But I think it was very, very helpful and important to the club that as the figurehead and as the, you know, this genius player that he was there for the move into the Emirates. James, what about the criticism that he never did it in the biggest games? Well, I mean, he would point to his World Cup medal and his his, his Euros medal with France. Uh, I think he, you know, he played an important role in getting Arsenal to that Champions League final. Granted, he, he didn't score the second goal, but... I think that's unfair. You know, Amy mentioned at the top that Liverpool game where Arsenal's season was on the line, their unbeaten record was on the line. 
you know, he stepped up and delivered there. I remember several goals against Manchester United, including two extraordinary goals against Manchester United, the one where he clipped it up and volleyed it in from the edge of the box. And then another one where he just smashed it in from about 30 yards and it moved all over the place. Also at Highbury, the, the late header against them, the slalom run against Spurs. Uh, I, I think he did turn up in enough. I think it's difficult sometimes when you go away from home in these big matches as a striker to impose yourself as much as you'd like. But the fact that I'm just able to name so many off who, the bat. Says, who says that, Stoney? Who's, where's that? Who's, who circulates rumours and things like that? Tao WhatsApp me <laughs> to ask the question. I think it, I think it was a thing that was aimed at him at the time, uh, you know, by some sections of the the media. But I don't think it's something that massively has by case. Yeah. any substance to it. Really, was it all really about the Champions League final? Because if he scores that second goal and we win it, is it really just it maybe starts from something like that? Yeah, yeah maybe. maybe, maybe that Champions League final. I mean. You know, we look at that second one-on-one, for example, where he goes through on goal and he's he's on his uh, right in the right-hand channel, and it's a bit of a tame effort. I do think if you look at that clip out of context, you go, "Oh, I expect Tyrion Reid to do better there." When you watch it in the context of the game and the effort that he put in for a ten-man Arsenal, you know, chasing things down, chasing lost causes, you know, pressuring Barcelona's centre halves when they had the ball, he was knackered, and you saw that in that moment. And so I think. We have to be a bit forgiving of him in that instance. Yeah, it, let, let's put this one to bed by saying anyone who says that he wasn't a big game player doesn't know what they're talking about. There you go. Next subject. <laughs> <laughs> let's. That's Jeez done then. Whiz. Yeah, no. I, listen, I feel I feel pretty much the same way. I'm just putting it out there. Um, I, I mean, he scored by the way the winner in the Bernabeu as well, uh, as as well as a number of other brilliant goals. Um, can we? I, I know it's a particular game, but can I just talk about that Leeds game for a bit when he came back and he scored the winning goal? I know we've spoken about this on the podcast before, but I I don't think I've ever seen a moment like that. Lee, were you you weren't playing in that game? Were you at that game? I was doing the um, yeah I was doing the commentary for BBC Five Live, and the and the funny thing about that game was because I'm kind of quite elitist in my uh, in my broadcasting. Um, Ability. I do a lot of cha- I do a lot of Premier League. Most of my stuff. I don't really do um, Championship stuff and and below because that's just the way the people I work for don't cover that. So, and I was doing five live uh, BBC Radio and I forgot my glasses, which is unheard of <laughs> oh for a common. And and or I either forgot them or I sat on them. I didn't have them when I was kind of. So I put my headphones on. I got my microphone. I looked up, and all the players were warming up. And I know virtually every player in the Premier League, so I don't really, you don't really need to see their numbers on the back. I can kind of work out from the body language. And then all these Leeds players ran out, and I was like, oh, I'm in trouble now. <laughs> but fortunately, it was radio. So every time I mentioned a player, nobody knew if I got him right or wrong. But I was at the game, yes. Yeah, and and have you ever? I mean, I'm asking everyone this. Have have you ever seen anything like that? The the return of the king, or whatever you want to call it, and and him doing scoring, as you said, James, a Thierry Henry goal mm. to win the game. The the first touch to kill it from Alex Song, and then to his body shape and just stroking it into the the corner. Have you ever seen anything like that? 
No, and scoring a goal that was vintage Thierry Henry, but celebrating in a way that was unlike anything we'd seen from before. You know, this was the guy who could bang in a 30-yard free kick and just shrug his shoulders. But as he put it himself, in that moment, it was the first time he'd scored as a fan. You know, he was a fan of Arsenal by that point. He he came back to the club so enamoured with it. And for him to have that moment on his debut was just brilliant. And also, I think it's forgotten, but in that period, he was actually pretty helpful for Arsenal. We had a goal taken off him by the Dubious Goals panel, which still annoys me to this day. I think it was against Blackburn. <laughs> but he also scored with his final kick in the Premier League, pretty Sunderland. much, against Sunderland. Yeah. Uh, so it was a really good little spell. It wasn't like he came for a farewell tour. He was he was really useful to us in that period too. Amy, what about your memories of that? I think it helps to put it in a little bit of context of its era, which is... In 2012, it wasn't maybe the you know the happiest and best time. And you think about Arsenal having had that sort of incredible 10-year spell on, on the, the first decade of Wenger and winning so much and being so brilliant and being becoming accustomed actually to great football and winning football all the time uh, and almost a bit spoiled. And then the move to the Emirates and and this was the period of putting up of years without a trophy. This was the period of trying out a youth project or you know, having to, to bring in the type of players because money was tight that were maybe not quite of the level that people had been used to for a long period of time. And I think there was a slight down, maybe, in that in that time, which is why for Thierry to come back, like the prodigal son, like the second coming, and it was almost a religious experience. Yeah. The only um, the only return of the king moment that surpasses that tenfold is when Wrighty played in my testimonial and came back and came on as sub and it was almost like it was the Ian Wright testimonial and I had to go off and sort of sulk in the dressing room. Well, that, just uh, only he could do that. I think it's fitting. There's three players with statues outside. I mean, there's Ken Fryer and there's Herbert Chapman, but the three players, Tony Adams, Dennis Burkamp, and uh, Thierry Henry. And, and fitting, I think we all agree, that it's a statue of him celebrating in front of Tottenham fans, don't you think? Very much so. And, you know, that's become like a, a pilgrimage point for so many Arsenal fans. You know, before the game, that's where everyone has their photo taken by the, the statue of Thierry Henry. And, uh, yeah, I love that that's there at the Emirates Stadium. Absolutely right, it should be. If you could nominate another person for a statue that hasn't already got one, who would you choose? Oh, stop Rob. it, stop it. Come <laughs> <laughs> on then. Nigel Winterburn. <laughs> Nigel Winterburn, absolutely, definitely. Oh, Wrighty's got to be next, doesn't he? Wrighty's got to be next, surely, if there is someone else. Or Arsene, yeah. potentially. I think Arsene's is being made. It's on the way, apparently. Yeah. It's is it? being cast, is that right? What about Rocky? Yeah. yeah, yeah, good point. That's the yeah. other one. Uh, thank you, Lee. Self-isolate safely. Enjoy your cooking <laughs> and uh, and stay well. Cheers. James, you have been writing about Hector Bellerin this week. Uh, the the the, uh, the the headline of the piece is helped to, is Hector Bellerin helped or hindered by his veganism. Um, you spoke about, I mean, how long has he been a vegan now? Since Hector? 2016. Uh, he started it apparently because he was interested in the sort of uh, performance benefits. You know, he was having a lot of problems with inflammation and pain after games and he made the switch and then he learned more about it from an ethical point of view. And, you know, it's a big part of his 
his lifestyle now. And, you know, that makes him a bit of a, an outlier in football. There aren't a lot of vegan footballers around. There are people who eat predominantly vegetarian or predominantly vegan, but little bits of animal fat here and there. But, yeah, he, he, um, he's been doing that for a while. And it's just interesting because, obviously, his performances and his physicality has struggled a little bit of late. But, you know, there's a few people inside and outside the club who would query his choices there. But, you know, I think you have to look at the injury and the severity of the injury he had and say that's probably more likely to be an influence in in his problems as anything else, you know, certainly than his diet. But it, it's an interesting subject to one there's uh, pretty heated opinions about on both sides. Yeah, but Amy, uh, Amy, I mean, we've watched him and we've watched him when he was eating meat and we watched him as a vegan. And maybe you could say his performances have not been so good in the last few seasons. But there's any number, as James said, a myriad number of reasons why that might be the case. It might be nothing to do with the veganism. The veganism, in fact, might have stopped him from performing even worse. Well, there's another uh, Arsenal-connected person, David Hillier, who recently went vegan, I think, um... To, much to his own sort of surprise, but uh, he was a very happy meat eater, but had had some sort of stomach concerns. And this was the road that he was advised to go down. He kind of had a challenge to see if he could do a month without it. And he was quite doubtful. Um, and I bumped into him at a game two or three weeks in and he said, my God, I've never felt better. And he was really serious about it. And I think that you have to obviously respect everybody's choice to live their life and eat their life, eat whatever they want in, in those kind of ways. Uh, I don't eat meat. I don't feel particularly, I mean, I'm a weakling anyway, so I don't know how much of a, an issue that has, but I don't feel like I can't do stuff or, um, so yeah, I, I mean, I think it's interesting that someone of Hector's um, values and I like the fact that he's a man who seems interested in lots of things outside of football. He's very socially conscious. He learns about things and then makes his own decisions. I think that reflects extremely well on him as a human. Um, and I think it's quite cool that he's done this. And if it suits him and he feels well, brilliant. I don't think it's anyone else's business, to be quite honest. And to start predicting that it might be affecting his performance on the pitch is quite weird to me because there's so much data now that they're... Um, pulling together at the club about every player that I think that if they felt there was a very, very clear sense that his data was struggling in certain departments because of this specific thing, uh, then I'm sure that there would be conversations about how to balance that out. Now, Amy, you uh, this week, you've written a piece, um, well, you're writing a piece about a guy you were saying, Paddy Gallagher. Now, who is this guy? Okay, so Paddy was a legend of Highbury. I mean, in many ways, he was part of Highbury and he was uh, someone I was lucky enough to get to know and he, he quite influenced kind of everything for me in terms of Arsenal. But he, he lived at the stadium and uh, in the sort of last sort of 15, 20 years before um, Highbury was redeveloped, if you walked up Avenel Road on a non-match day, pretty much any time, he used to be standing around on the steps outside the marble halls checking out what was going on. And he was kind of the guardian of Highbury. And because he lived in a, in a flat on the, uh, over on the other side, uh, on, on the West Stand entrance, where there's some flats, um, just where people used to go through that tunnel towards the turnstiles over there, uh, he was in charge of everything. Everybody loved him. He'd do all sorts of things for people. He had a whole series of mad jobs and responsibilities. He kind of lived in the dressing room. And in the week, because I think his... Um, his 
cold water didn't work in his bathroom, he only had boiling, he would have showers and baths in the dressing room. That's where he got clean, you know, if you can imagine that that's your, that's your bathroom, basically. But he used to uh, go up on the roofs and the big flags that they used to have at Highbury. It was his job to kind of, he, he took pride in changing them for every match. So, and he had two sets, one, one that was clean, he'd go up, up on the roofs and get the, get the old ones down and change them. And then he could wash the, wash the new lot to be looking fresh and pristine for the next game. And um, he would often, in the, in the summer, when the weather was good, he would just sunbathe on the roof of Highbury. I mean, he was a real old character and he was part of the club that all the players, George Graham, Arsene Wenger, loved him. And um, uh, I think that modern football, we've lost people like that, people yeah. in clubs who kind of keep everybody up and pass on the sort of ideas and the, and the good feelings that you need inside a football club. And Paddy was the epitome for me of someone who was what Arsenal was really all about. I mean, on a personal note, I came down for a game in 1991 when I wasn't living in London. Uh, and I, di I didn't know the game had been called off through fog, which it had been a victim to the fog about an hour and a half before kickoff. And I kind of arrived at Highbury and looked around and thought, where is everybody? And I don't understand what's going on. And I wandered up to the marble halls and there was Paddy standing on the stairs. And I... I said, what's happening? And he said, what are you doing here? And I didn't know him. Uh, and I said, well, I've come for the football match. I don't really... And he said, well, it's off, you know. <laughs> and I was like, oh, God, you know, I've just driven two hours for this. So I was obviously a bit peeved. And he said, well, have you ever been inside? I said, no. He said, come on then. Oh, he took me into goodness. the marble halls. He showed me around. He took me in the dressing rooms, down the tunnel, the, to the pitch and the manager's dugouts. And then we sat in... There was a lovely... Uh, room called the Halfway House, which was halfway down the tunnel. It was a quite pokey little room, but a significant one where players used to have meetings in the seventies. And they, there was a Paddy had a um, a kettle and a toaster, and there was a little portable telly in there. And we had a cup of tea and biscuits and watched the half times coming in from the games that were still on. And um, it was, you know, it was an amazing thing because I ended up having an incredible experience and got by accident to know this guy who sort of introduced me to other people at Arsenal so when, I, when I was just a, a fan, just like everybody else, and kind of ended up getting a bit, getting to know people inside the club, like through him really, because he knew everyone. These are the people around the club who make a difference. I, I mean, there was an announcement, exactly. wasn't there, this week about Arsenal paying their casual staff and their support staff through this sort of coronavirus um, uh, problem for uh, at least until the end of April. And I think that's uh, to be applauded. And like you say, these sort of guys, uh, they, they really, they are part of the fabric of the club. Um, before we go, let's have a song from you guys. Uh, this, we have been talking about Thierry Henry. Let's have a, a song from each of you. James, I'll come to you first. Well, I was doing a bit of reading around Thierry this morning and uh, music played quite a big part in his match day routine. And there was a big period of time where he was actually the guy in the dressing room who was in charge of the music. And I saw, he said there was a song that came out in 2003. It was called Never Scared by Bone Crusher. And he said that was his pre-match song because that's how he wanted to go on the field. He wanted to go on there feeling like he wasn't afraid of anything at all. So I'd have to choose that, I reckon. I don't, 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 I I got a hot four feet 
Well, I think it's been an absolute pleasure talking about Thierry. We could have done another five hours of it, I think, just going through the best goals and assists and all the rest of it. Uh, thanks, Amy. Been a pleasure. Thank you to James. Thanks to Lee Dixon. And thanks to Tayo. This has been Handbrake Off, an Arsenal podcast for The Athletic. I'm Ian Stone. Stay safe, everyone. Thank you.